So, brothers and sisters, let's turn to the last book of the scriptures, uh, the book of Revelation. Uh, we'll be reading that chapter, chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. I'll be reading from the English uh, Standard Version translation. This is uh, the Apostle John who has recorded this, who is writing this narrative. It begins this way in chapter 4. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, and one seated on the throne. And he, and he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments, with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Let's pray before we begin looking at this passage of God's word this morning. Our God and Father, we would pray for your Holy Spirit, asking that you would give us such a measure of your spirit that our minds would be uh, properly illuminated uh, by this passage from your word and by that same spirit properly motivated to pursue in, in all ways uh, that which we are taught in this passage, that which might set for us the most important example, that which might bring to us a deeper knowledge of who you are. In all ways in which you have designed for this passage to teach and to feed your people, we pray that we would be those who would learn and those who would find themselves nourished on your word. We would ask this, Father, so that our lives would be more conformed to the image of your Son, 
that we might live in such a way that we would please you in all respects, that we might bear fruit in every good work, that we might be made so strong in Christ that we would have perseverance and endurance with thanksgiving and joy, uh, always growing in the knowledge of you, the God who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, the God who has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of your own beloved Son, in whom there is redemption and the forgiveness of sins. All of this we pray for. All of this we have the privilege and right to pray for, because we come in the name of Jesus, even as we come to sit under your word. In his name, amen. Uh, Stu made mention of the fact that I've been teaching here at Sangre de Cristo uh, this past week and now teaching again this coming week. And so in, in, the, in class last week, this past week, as we were looking at uh, the Word of God, as we were looking at the, uh, the standards, the Westminster Confession of Faith and what it has to say about the Word of God, uh, I introduced the topic of uh, perspicuity. And so one of the students who's actually reading the class notes and he comes upon the word, he's reading it to the class, perspicuity, he sort of pauses and he says, well, what does that word mean? And another student said, uh, clarity. And the fellow responded, oh, well, that's ironic. <laughs> A word that's supposed to express clarity. <laughs> Uh, often will stumble us today because it's not a very common English word. And so we were looking at the perspicuity of of uh, what, what Scripture has to say, what Scripture has to teach. As we come to the book of Revelation, I would say that uh, this particular idea, this this issue of clarity is is big before us. Because the, the, the doctrine that we hold to, uh, what the reformers were able to bring out so clearly at the time of the Reformation, is that the Bible itself has a great clarity of purpose, a, a great clarity of meaning, and a great clarity in its teachings, at the same time that not all parts of the Bible are equally clear, not all are equally clear in the same way, uh, not all speak to everything to the same degree. So our confession of faith actually says this in chapter 1, verse verse 7, to remind us about how we should come to the scriptures when we find things that may be difficult. And so they have written this. All things in scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation, are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or other that not only the learned, but the unlearned, in a due sense of the ordinary means, may attain into a sufficient understanding of them. So what this means, generally speaking, is, is that the Bible is very clear with respect to the way of salvation, the means of salvation, who is the one who saves us, and what it takes to connect rightly with the Savior. The Bible's clear about all of that. And yet, as we read through uh, the entire Bible, we know there are places that are a bit challenging for any of us to really understand. 
And do we need to say that 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 challenge stands for us here in the book of Revelation? It's a difficult book. It's a highly symbolic presentation of what God was doing, what God had done, and what God intends to do. And, and the great challenge is to discern how this symbolic history actually maps onto actual history. And we have to confess within the world of good and godly and great men who are expertise in terms of their scholarship, there is not uh, agreement with respect to all things contained in this book. Because not everything in this book is really plain even to people who are very learned as scholars. However, even apart from any one of us perhaps having the best overall accurate picture on what every part of this book means, we can still have a good reading and a good grasp of what some of the very significant chapters are teaching. In this regard, I think about uh, those letters that Jesus has written to the churches in chapter 2 and chapter 3. But especially, and in the same vein, I think about chapter 4 and chapter 5, which are going to be for us over the next few weeks. Because here in a very clear way, uh, even though it's symbolically presented, in a very clear way we have the presentation of the doctrine of the Creator and the Redeemer within the context of a vision of God-centered worship. And that will be our focus and emphasis as we consider these two chapters. Chapter 4 today, uh, chapter 4 again in a couple of weeks, and then to continue on in July with chapter 5. What these chapters clearly teach us, the perspicuity of these chapters, focus upon the worship that we owe to God. And, and and by looking at these things, we want to stay motivated in what has been our preaching and teaching theme since January. We want to be reminded again and again and reinforced again and again that the Father is the one who seeks those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And because that is true, then we say that the goal of redemption is the restoration to our calling to be God-centered in our lives, terminating upon a worship-centered kind of life. The goal of redemption is to be restored. The the calling that we're called to is to live God-centered lives. The ultimate purpose for which God created us and has redeemed us is that we might glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now, I would propose as a kind of an outline of of this chapter that we're going to look at today, chapter 4, that there's really three big pictures, three big truths that we can find in this text. The first would be this, that, that Christ is the revealer of God as the creator of all things. Secondly, that God the creator is the sovereign over all of his creation. And then thirdly, the proper relationship of the creature to the creator is worship. So we have these three big picture truths, and I want us to begin with the first picture. Uh, The first that really comes as we come into this passage, which is this. Christ is the revealer of God 
who is the creator of all things. Now we begin here with verse 1, and what we read here is that John is looking again. That is to say, this is this begins a new vision. It's a vision that begins after the previous visions, which uh, involved Christ and his letter to the seven churches. And, and what he sees in this vision is an open door in heaven. And he hears that trumpet sounding like voice speaking to him again with this invitation to come up to this open door and to be shown what is supposed to take place next what is to take place in symbolic history. And this voice, the speaker, is actually Christ himself, uh, the one who began speaking and revealing back in chapter 1 with a voice like a trumpet. Uh, What we understand from this, putting chapter 4 in the context of chapter 1, is that this whole prophecy is from Christ. Christ is actually the revealer throughout everything we would read in the book of Revelation, Christ is the revealer of this vision of heaven that John is now relating and has written down. Well, three significant questions ought to be asked when we understand that Christ here is the revealer. And the first would be this. Why does there need to be a revealer? Why does there need to be a mediator between God and human banks? You know, a go-between. Uh, something or someone who reveals God and reveals what God is doing. Why can't there just be sort of this direct communication between between God and us? Well, it's a good question. And we can actually see uh, a fairly substantial uh, reply to this question from the time of Exodus. Uh, on Mount Sinai, Moses learned something of the greatest spiritual significance which is at the heart of the Christian faith, the heart of the relationship between God and ourselves. And it is this essential truth. No one can actually see God, no human being, no angelic being, can actually gaze directly upon God himself as he is and live. We read about this in Exodus 33, 19 and 20. God is responding to Moses. Moses has said to God, show me your glory. Now, the word glory there is is not the glory that God reveals, because God has revealed his glory in all of creation. But Moses knew that. Moses had seen that. Moses was asking for a deeper sense of the glory of God. Uh, You know, the, the pillar of fire by day. Uh, by night, and the cloud that that was over the Israelites by day uh, is said in Scripture to have been a a manifestation of the glory of God. Clearly, Moses is asking for something more, something deeper, something that is more essential in connection to who God is. But this is what God says to Moses. I will make all of my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, or Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. In essence, what God was saying to Moses is the unmediated reality of God is that which no living being can actually handle. Now, later in this passage, 
We're going to see why this is the case. But for now, let's just anchor ourselves into this important biblical truth. No one can see God as God is in his essence, in his essential nature, and remain alive. Paul makes this clear in the first letter to Timothy, and he does so twice. In 1 Timothy 1, verse 17, this is what he says. It's a doxology. He says, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, the honor and glory forever and ever. And then in the last chapter, chapter 6, verse 16, he repeats things that are very similar, but it helps us to understand this invisibility of God when he says concerning God, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So, because this is true, there must be a revealer. There must be a mediator who goes between God and human beings simply because of who God is in himself. So the second significant question, who is the revealer? Who could actually stand in both the presence of God and the presence of human beings and mediate? And of course, the answer is Jesus Christ. Paul states this in 1 Timothy 2.5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So there it is. Uh, Christ in his incarnation is the perfect mediator between this God whom we cannot see in himself and human beings whom God has chosen to make himself known. He does so through the mediator. But John's gospel focuses not on the humanity of Jesus, not only on the deity of Jesus, but really on the incarnation of Jesus. But he does it in a very powerful way. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 18, he again expresses the, the inability and inaccessibility of the very nature of God as God is in himself. And he says, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And of course, this refers to Christ. It refers to the word made flesh. It refers to the one who is both God and man simultaneously since his incarnation. He has made God known. But now we come to a third question and we ask, well, what kind of revelation does Jesus reveal here? That is in the book of Revelation. That is in terms of what form, what manner, uh, what style, how is Christ revealing uh, the Father in, in this particular passage. Well, if no one could see God directly, how is John going to be shown these heavenly realities concerning God? And the answer is, Christ reveals this, quote, seeing, they are visions, these, the seeing of God by way of symbolic visions. Christ uses visual symbolism to present and to represent the reality of God. Everything that Christ shows John is a symbolic image. So Christ shows John a throne, and he shows him the one who's sitting upon the throne. We see this in verse 2. 
This symbolizes the king of heaven. It symbolizes his kingship. And then in verse 3, he goes on to show us the appearance of this king, the appearance of the God who can't be seen, the appearance of the God who dwells in unapproachable light, the appearance of God that no one has seen or can see is done symbolically. And so the appearance of this king and the appearance of the throne room is presented in these symbolic ways in verse 3. And then verses 4 through 11, we find that the audience that is within the throne room and, and the activities of their worship, it's all given to us in symbolic, visionary language. Now, if we had time, and considerable time it would take at that, we could make connections between each and every one of these symbolic representations and places in the Old Testament where these symbolic representations are first presented in Scripture. And we could then begin matching out the correspondences. But really the point is this. Symbolic language is used by Christ to reveal realities that are presented Realities that exist that are beyond what ordinary language can describe and beyond what ordinary ling ling uh, experience can actually endure or express. So the symbols say it is like this, but it's so much more. The reality of the glory that we see as, as God is described in these ways as the throne room of heaven is described in these ways. It's like this, but it's so much more all to emphasize and to magnify the majesty of God. But the big truth here is this. No one comes to the Father except through me. Those are the words of Christ, which is to say, we have our relationship with the Father in every way through Christ as the mediator who reveals to us the King of Heaven, the creator of all things. To all who would ever find God, the way and the truth and the life are found in Christ. He is the way and the only way to the Father who is the creator of all things. Now, now the second big picture that we have here is, is, is God the creator who is the sovereign over all of creation. And once again, there's perspicuity in what we see here. There's, there's clarity within this symbolism that we find in this chapter with respect to this big picture of God the creator sovereign over all of his creation. So two things here. We can begin with seeing what John sees and then we will move on to what John hears. So with, with this symbolic uh, history that's going on, this symbolic experience of John, first there's a seeing and there's a hearing. So verse 2, we have the throne room. This is what he sees. He sees the one who's sitting there, who's the king of heaven. And he sees all these other thrones, 24 of them. They are clearly secondary thrones. They are clearly thrones that are subservient to the main throne that is in the center. And then on, on four sides of the throne, we have the four living creatures. And the four sides of the thrones, 
as the four points often are represented in Scripture, are like the four points of the compass, that the four sides of the throne point in all four directions, which makes them comprehensively pointing to all parts of creation. And then as well, we have those seven spirits, which we are told in chapter 1, verse 4, are the seven spirits that are sent out into all the earth. So we have a, a visible representation here. We have a picture that all points to God at the very center of reality. Uh, God as the king over all things. God as the supreme being, the supreme sovereign over all other subordinate sovereigns or all other subordinate powers or all other subordinate aspects of his creation. That is what John sees. We continue then with what John hears. Verse 8. The four living creatures who have the six wings, who are full of eyes in front and back. Here's what John hears. They never stop saying day and night. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is, and is to come. Now, let's unpack this statement. First, what John hears is this, that God is holy three times. God is thrice holy. Now, that right there indicates this is the preeminent attribute of God. You see, no other attribute of God, whether it's his wisdom his power, uh, his goodness, his justice, his mercy, his love, none of the other attributes of God is ever presented in Scripture this way with this kind of triple emphasis. And yet, with respect to the holiness of God, the Bible does it twice. In that passage in Isaiah 6 and in the passage here. In the Hebrew, if you wanted to give something emphasis you said it twice. If you wanted to make it most emphatic in the most ultimate sense, you would say it three times. Holy, holy, holy is the way of expressing that God's holiness is a holiness to the maximal degree. Now, it's this holiness, the holiness of God, is why God cannot be seen by any living creature and why it's impossible for any living creature to be in his presence. This holiness is beyond what any living creature can ever endure. It is the unapproachable light of the glory of God. Now, if in a vision, Isaiah can become undone uh, as the Cherubs and seraphim announce the holy, holy, holy God. If even to see God in this way in a vision causes him to cry out, you know, woe to me, I am lost or undone, another translation, then how much more the direct experience of God's holiness would be that fire that would consume? This is the insight that we find by the writer of Hebrews in chapter 12, verse 29, when he declares for our God is a consuming fire. 
And this is why God must reveal himself through a mediator who is Christ. But continue in terms of what is said in verse 8. He is the Lord God Almighty. Now, that phrase expresses a compound idea. God is the Lord who is also all-powerful or omnipotent. The idea of lordship is that of ruling authority. It's of his kingship, his sovereignty. And so this description taken together means this. God is the ultimate ruling authority who possesses the ultimate power to do all of his will. And then the third part of what's said there, who was and is and is to come. Now, that statement is a figure of speech. Technically, it's called embarrassum. And merisms usually express completeness or totality. And here it is, the totality of time. God is the God of all time because he's the God of the past, who was. He's the God of the present, who is. He's the God of the future, who is to come. It is another way of saying, as is stated in verse 9, that God is the one who lives forever and ever. God is eternal. And what is voiced here by the four living creatures echoes what was already stated by God himself in Revelation 1 verse 8, where God said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So here John hears the four living creatures echoing what God has already said and testified to about himself. Then we come to verse 11, the second half, where we continue to see or hear what John hears, even this description of God that is spoken by the 24 elders. The basic teaching is this. God is the creator of all things. There is scarcely any symbolism at all in these words. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Now, in the first place, this clearly harkens back to Genesis 1. By God speaking, God created all things. God spoke, and creation came into existence. But as well, there's a very strong emphasis upon the will of God. Where, here is what John hears. By your will, they existed and were created. By God's sovereign will, all things, all things that are, have existed. Which means not only did God create them sovereignly by the expression of his will and speaking them into existence, but God is also the one who is the sustainer. God sustains all things by his will. All things that exist continue to exist because God continues to will that they would exist. It's his will and his power that keeps all things in existence. What this means is that nothing that exists ever does so by its own power. Nothing in all of creation has the power to exist on its own. Nothing has the power of existing within itself. The universe doesn't have the power to exist within itself. It doesn't have the power to exist or to continue to exist on its own. And no molecule 
has the power to exist within itself. All things exist and continue to exist by the sovereign will of God's own power. Now, when we think about God, in light of this, we need to see ourselves more accurately. You and I are not independent beings in any way at all. We have no power in ourselves to exist. We have no power to think, to breathe, to eat. We have no power that is not given to us at all times by God. You may have many moments during the day when you do not think about God. There is never an instant when God is not thinking about you and willing you to live and to exist. Then we come then to the third big picture idea, the proper relationship of the creature to the creator, which is worship. And again, there's clarity in the midst of all this symbolism that points us in this direction, that God is the central focus of all of his creation, and that focus is wrapped up in worship. Now, the first thing we notice, looking at this passage, that it's God and God alone who is worshipped, not any of the creatures and not any aspect of the creation. That uniqueness that only God is to be worshipped is symbolized in a couple of ways. First, it's the activity of the four living creatures that points in this direction. Symbolically, these angelic beings, four of them, because they each are on the four sides of the throne, represent the totality of all created things that God has created that could possibly be worshiping God. So all of the created order which they represent is directed toward worshiping God and worshiping God alone. God is the focus of their worship. But then secondly, we have these 24 elders. The symbolism is pretty transparent. Twelve representing the old covenant, twelve representing the new covenant. And together they represent the totality of the people of God. The totality of the people of God. The people of God before the coming of Christ. The people of God after the coming of Christ. And what we see is this. God is the focus of their worship. Not anything else in all of creation is ever an aspect or particle of the worship of God. All creation proclaims the glory of God. And then we see how God is worshipped. With respect to the four living creatures, we see that it is constantly they are proclaiming what they say about God. And then we see God is worshipped in humility. The elders fall down before the throne and they cast down their crowns. Consider what they say. The four living creatures, verse 8, acknowledge the holiness of God. They acknowledge his very being as the Lord God, the sovereign ruler. He is the king over all. He is the king who has all power, and they give to him honor and thanks. It is all of God in terms of their worship. And then verse 11 uh, these 24 elders that represent the church of all ages, they declare that God is worthy, worthy to receive glory, honor, and power. 
in the throne room, the audience that is there before God, uh, those that Jesus reveals as representative of uh, all who are naturally by virtue of creation worshiping God and all who are by virtue of redemption worshiping God. This is their life. This is their significance. This is their very purpose. And so think about this chapter. Think about what Christ reveals to John. There is no place of greater significance in all of reality than the throne room of God. And Christ enables us to see it in visionary symbols, yet with great clarity as to what these symbols would tell us. That as creatures made by God, we have a great purpose. And that is to live for God, to worship God, to know the truth about God, and to give him all the glory and honor and power and thanksgiving that he is so worthy of in his holy, holy, holy character as the creator of all things. And this is the reason Christ came and died, to redeem us for our truest purpose of glorifying God and enjoying him forever. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that we would live to hallow your name. We pray that we would live for the coming of your kingdom. We pray for the day in which you consummate all of human history. When all this great symbolism that you present in this great book become the reality that we understand in all of its fullness. Where everything that has life and breath bows the knee before you and exalts you as our God, the one who has made us and created us and given us life and given us purpose. That through your son, we would bring you glory forever and ever. May it be so. Open up our hearts to live for the worship of the all-glorious God. In Jesus' name, amen.